0: Now, it's a matter of us pulling it all together to like the whole joint and, and putting on what I think will be a brilliant showcase for the sport. Yeah, we'll be honest with ourselves next week, as usual, and say, okay, it's a stonking result, but what could we have done better? Finding that
1: passion for racing again, you know, stop looking at it like my job and, and go back to just doing it because I love racing cars and I love competing, and that's really what's changed this year. Hi everyone, welcome to Inside Supercars, Shane Van Gisbergen from the Red Bull Holden Racing Team here.
2: This week we have a special treat with conversations with Murray Lomax, who I have known since uh, the very early 90s and possibly even late 80s. Part one this week, next week more.
1: for Daniel Ricardo's old man to have found a few mates to tip some money in and send him overseas. There actually needs to be a structure. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. Dick Johnson from DJR
2: Team Fenske. And you're on Inside Supercars. We're sitting now with Murray Lomax. Murray, of course, uh, reached the height of uh, supercars heading up the television department when it was started and for many years uh, ruled with an iron fist there. <laughs> they quiver in pit lane when they knew he was coming. No, no, none of that. But, um, Murray, I'd just love to hear your background and how you got to that position and, and your thoughts on it and the way television is now for
0: V8s and TV. Oh, there's been dramatic changes, just as there has been with supercars. There's been dramatic okay. changes from over. Let's the, over let's the years. start with your story. Where we are, um, uh, where we are, or how we. Adelaide. Got yep, yep. Starting in Adelaide. Well, I I grew up in Adelaide, uh, and uh, when I was in high school there, I uh, enjoyed being part of the theatre group at school. Uh, and where like, was that school? Uh, it was Marion High. Oh, right. Yep. Okay. Uh, it's quite a large school, I think, from memory. Was, but it doesn't exist anymore. Oh, wow um it's just a lot of houses now yeah (laughs) um and uh i really enjoyed that i produced a few productions for the school uh and student reviews and things like that Uh, and i wanted to continue to be able to do that sort of thing but at the same time i was working part-time for a coal supermarket oh wonderful Uh, people yes (laughs) and so you know i've got got a very uh, pedestrian background there uh and then um Uh, When I left school, I wanted to continue on in theatre, but couldn't get any work at all. I had some people who encouraged me, but in the long run, I needed to be able to make some money. So I applied for a job with Channel 10, uh, and um, there were 240-odd applicants for the job there. It got down to two. I was one of the two. Missed out. Then got the opportunity to undertake some training nights at Channel 7, Oh. Uh, and uh, there were 16 of us that did these training nights over six weeks, uh, two nights a week. And uh, out of that they picked two people to employ and I was one of the two to, wow. to get employed. So uh, I learnt a lot. Uh, and when I look back on it, it was such a rudimentary operation in those days. How, how long were you there? Uh, I was there for 18 years. At wow. Gee. Yeah. Um, and I went from being a stagehand. Um, my first week there I, had, uh, I took part in uh, a country music show called Country Style and uh, you know, I was late for work one day when they were setting up and the, uh, the floor manager there said to me, if you're late for work, you get punished. I was two minutes late. So he sent me to clean the toilets. <laughs> Uh, and I was never late for work ever again after that, um, but you know, uh, it was a great learning experience because it was a live band, live audience. Uh, it was slightly like an internship then almost. It, it, it sort of was, except that that's what they did. You know, they did a lot of production. Yes. Uh, they were producing programs seven days a week, many of them live. Yeah. Uh, and um, There is nothing else like live, is there? No, no, that's yeah. right. It's, uh, you, you've got to be ready, you've got to be right, and if you're not, then you've got to work your way out of the hole you dug yourself into. Um, and I really enjoyed that. Uh, you know, we, we didn't have much in the way of technology, so you had to find ways to make it entertaining. Yeah. And I think that was a really good grounding for me, to be able to do those sorts of things. And I um, started out as a stagehand, as I said, and soon, you know, because of people who were sick or were leaving, uh, I... Um, Got the opportunity to become a cameraman, a studio cameraman, and then an outside broadcast cameraman. And I loved that, really enjoyed it, right? Uh, and would have been happy to keep going at it, except that um, uh, my manager at the time said that uh, he thought that I could do more, huh. and wanted me to become involved in so as that, director.
2: That school report that said, uh, good aptitude and loads of potential is now coming to fruition. <laughs>
0: <laughs> sort of, yes. Um, Uh, I was also one of the lucky ones to get noticed because uh, I think we had uh, 19 or 20 crew working for that TV station on the floor as cameramen, soundmen and people like that. Uh, And whenever there was a break in the production, anybody that wanted to have a smoke would go out the back. I wasn't a smoker. So? So when somebody wanted something done, I was always there.
2: Yeah.
0: And they'd come to me and say, where's so-and-so? Can you go and get such-and-such? And And I got noticed. Yeah, yeah. uh, Because I wasn't a smoker. Uh, And uh, I've never forgotten that.
2: (laughs) It benefited in two ways.
0: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Um, But I I soon became what's called a coordinator, where I was putting program content to air. Uh, Junior junior producer. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And then um, uh, from there I went on to becoming a... A director of live programs, I used to do kids shows, news services. Then I got involved in sport, uh, and I became uh, the, the local football director for quite some time. And I made significant changes to the way. In Norwood Oval and places like that. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But I was inspired by the way the Americans did their TV coverage of uh, um, Gridiron. Yes. And there was nothing like that in Australia. Uh, and the, the head of uh, ABC Sport in the US was Rune Arledge, a man who's credited these days for developing the uh, slow-motion replay.
2: Okay.
0: And he brought a level of entertainment to their sports production uh, that hadn't happened before. You know, as was happening in Adelaide, people used to turn up with three or four cameras, put them out around, follow what was going on on the ground, and add some commentary, and that was and it. this is the... the, the that's where the tripod went last time. But that's where we put it this time. That's right. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And you didn't make any changes from one week to the next you know, year. It was the same thing over and over again. Um, and, and, you know, for a lot of the sort of technology that existed at that stage, that's about all you could do yeah. because it wasn't very portable. Um, but when things started to change, I could see some opportunities to be able to do things differently. And I absolutely knocked everybody out one day when I was directing a, a football game. And it was a very close finish to the game. And there was a lot of emotion for one of the teams that was involved. I think it was West Torrens in Adelaide. Uh, and uh, there's huge emotion as they ran off the field after winning the game by about two or three points. And I said to the cameraman we had, with the only portable cameraman, uh, with a heavy camera on his shoulder, to go into the rooms oh, with, wow. with the players and nobody had ever done that in Australia. You created Roaming Bride! (laughs) (laughs) And we went in and just got shots of what was going on. And that developed into then doing interviews in the rooms and things like that. Um, After a few years I got uh, attention from uh, the producers in Melbourne at Channel 7 in Melbourne who wanted to have a look at how we were doing things and wanted to know why it was that we were able to do some things that they weren't doing. Right. And I said, well, just think about it in a different way. Yeah, okay. And that's been a key all, all the way along. And you know, what can you do that's different? What can you do that's going to help the audience get a better understanding of what's happening with this sport? And, and remembering that, you know, that all sport is a huge emotional package. Uh, and that's one of the things I really love about it. You know, that I've done thousands of Aussie rules football games because uh, I, I went on to Melbourne and Sydney and worked for a, a first company outside of Channel Seven to produce the, uh, the then VFL coverage around Australia. Well, what was that company? Uh, sorry. What was that company's name?
2: That uh, was Broadcom.
0: Right. Okay.
2: I, don't, I they, remember the logo. They, they bought
0: the, the rights to produce the, the VFL. Yeah. As uh, that. That was the first year of the Brisbane Bears right. uh, and also the West Coast Eagles. Yep. Uh, and uh, I left Channel 7 in Adelaide and went and worked for them. And I flew from, like, from Adelaide on a Friday to Perth to do a game Friday evening in Perth, then fly back to Melbourne and do a game Saturday afternoon in Melbourne, catch a plane to either Sydney or the Gold Coast sun, Saturday night or Sunday morning and do a game on the Gold Coast and then fly back to Adelaide on Sunday night or Monday morning, depending on where I was. Did you get a Saturday or Saturday? Was it usually called Wednesday, Thursday? Or...? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was just, I, I, I worked with a lot of people who had never done um, AFL coverage. Yeah. And I um, worked with people that uh, were in senior management of the different stations and got to know a lot of people, and that helped me a lot yeah. to be able to move on from there. Um, and Broadcom had that contract for two years, I think it was. Uh, And then I moved out into an independent production company uh, and worked for that company for 12, 13 years, something like that. Uh, And and in the midst of all that, I got contracted by Channel 10 uh, through the 10 Network in Sydney to become involved as a golf director for them. I'd never directed golf, uh, but I... Did pretty well at that and it's a it's a an amazing sport where in your head you need to understand where everybody is on the golf course and who's likely to be coming to the fore and where the story of the day is. And not many people can actually build that story in their head yes. and, and develop a priority list as to what you have to be able to do. Okay. Uh, and, uh, I did okay at that, uh, you know, Michael Lordson was the head of sport at Channel 10 at that particular stage, became a great friend of mine, uh, and um, uh, he then encouraged me to uh, become a producer of the Melbourne Cup Carnival.
2: Uh-huh. Horse racing, another venture.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I had done some horse racing, okay. uh, and, uh, but nothing like the Melbourne Cup, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and it's, a, it's a very special property. Uh, in many many ways and we would we would produce 28 hours of tv coverage with something like 67 minutes worth of racing <laughs> that was over a week uh, of the melbourne cup carnival uh, and i had to find ways to be able to make that into an entertainment package because it had been a horse racing coverage up until i became involved yeah and uh, mike had said to me that they kept changing their staff all the time as who, who was producing the, the tv coverage and who was then involved in the rest of the team. And uh, I said that I would like to take it on uh, and settle that down if I could make it work. So after I did my first Melbourne Cup, which is the second day of a four-day racing carnival, he said, come on, we're going to lunch. We need to talk. Uh, And uh, he said, "Um, I want you to do more of this. I want you to do much more. I want to offer you a contract for three years to keep doing the Melbourne Cup Carnival and would like to look at being able to do other things from there. And I thought, mm, do I really want to do that? Luckily I said yes. <coughs> because from there I went on to, you know, I did the Melbourne Cup Carnival for 11 years uh, as executive producer of that uh, and changed the way we went about doing that. Uh, I Brought in the, the, the um, we used to use what was called the Whitman's Blimp with overhead shots of horse racing, uh, lots of different things with cameras in different locations that we built into it uh, and it to a manned it... blimp. Was it manned the
2: blimp? You yeah. had
0: cameras with men holding cameras. There was a remote control camera in the blimp. Yes. Oh, okay. With a cameraman in it. Oh, okay. Uh, and a pilot in the blimp. You over. Yeah. But Whitman's was a chocolate company, American chocolate company. They oh. sponsored the blimp. Oh, right. <laughs> and they supplied the cameraman and the camera for free, so long as we took a shot for ten seconds every hour of the blimp. Right. Which you could easily accommodate. That's exactly right. Yes. Right. <clears throat> uh, and that helped to break some new ground there. Uh, we brought in the use Well, of... yes, no one else had a chocolate blimp before, had they? No. 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 They hadn't. It did get used on a lot of other sports uh, by other networks. Uh, uh, soon after that, okay. um, and they, they rapidly became the biggest selling chocolate company in Australia oh, right. because of that sort of exposure that they were getting. Yeah. Um, but further development of technology helped to be able to do more and more things. The tracking camera would, r- would run alongside of the horses, uh, jockey cam, things like that got added to the mix. And, and the, the technology changed a lot and it made it possible to do things that you just couldn't do before. Uh, and then it was having a look at how to implement the usage of those sorts of things. Uh, and that helped about to push it along. But one of the things that I always had uh, was that um, uh, there were a lot of people I knew of that worked in TV that uh, had big egos about what it was that they did. And they, and they thought of themselves as the people who saved the production. Uh, and I always thought, because of my background, uh, working in a small TV station is there was it was the people around you that helped you to be able to achieve that. So what you needed to be able to do was build a good team of people. Yeah. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of my career is going through and finding the right people. And if you found the wrong person in some instances, what could you do to change things for them to still add to the, your team and and see what you could add to the quality of the production by doing it. Yeah. Uh, and, because I know there, are, there have been plenty of people that have been thrown on the scrap heap over the years because nobody wanted to persevere and try something else. Well, I, I often thought that was a, a bad way of working, and you often left people with a, bad feelings about you and, and the operation. Uh, and you wanted to bow to make sure that uh, people could be encouraged to go on and do better for themselves. I had a boss at Channel 7 in Adelaide who hated it when people left working for him, And I used to say, but if you could part on good terms, you might come back one day in a more senior position and could add to what the station could do rather than being in a situation where you say, well, I'm never going back there. Yeah. So that was important. And that's, that's been a critical part of the whole process for me. Build good teams, you get good results. Uh, and whereas there are some other people who just get so locked up into rescuing the package. You know, we're in trouble one way or another, yelling and screaming and getting people to panic about the work that they're doing. And that's not what you want.
1: Tony continues his chat with Murray Lomax right after the break. Each week join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it means a lot. you know. Through the years, a lot of reference this race is one of our
1: majors. 600 miles around here is no easy task.
0: Uh, we were able to beat the 2 boys and, uh, and meet Anthony Begley in the final, which uh, we were able to do but, um, take the win. off So, it was, uh, yeah, it was a great weekend for the uh, Rapperset family.
1: Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Join in the conversation. Post your thoughts on our Sport Radio Facebook page. Hi, I'm Macaulay Jones. i from the Cool Drive Radio. Racing team, and you're listening to Inside Supercars.
2: Welcome back to Inside Supercars. More with Murray Lomax. Welcome back to Inside Supercars. We're continuing to talk with Murray Lomax about his background and the way in which TV was run. My V8 TV, as it was, I think, Vesco TV or V8 TV. V8 yeah. TV. So tell us about your introduction. So you've had quite a history of sports, a variety of them.
0: Motorsport first came into your rise and win. Um, I had done some motorsport when I was with Channel Seven in Adelaide right. uh, initially, uh, and, and you know they were back, that was back in the late eighties. Yep. Uh, and then um, that sort of disappeared for a while. Uh, and when Channel Ten were looking to get the rights to be able to take on their supercars, uh, as it became known, yep. um, I, I was asked to, uh, with the production company I was working with, to take on producing the Sandown Five Hundred and uh, we did a few different things with that, some of which was a bit clumsy and...
2: Shooting around John Davison with his band, his, <laughs> his pipe band and things like that. It's... John's quite an icon. Yes, he is. Yes, I think he's a, you know, he was great because he wasn't just another run-of-the-mill promoter.
0: Uh, you know, just a little story is that the. First time I met John was when I went to Sandown to have a look at where we wanted to be able to put the cameras. And John said, let me take you around and I'll show you where Channel 7 put them. Yeah. He didn't like Channel 7. No, <coughs> and, with a <the> uh, sneer. <laughs> and he said, to, so I'll show you what they've done and, and you can work out what you want to do from there. And uh, as we were walking across the grass there at one stage, after having picked a few camera positions, he said, Murray, stop. And I said, why? He said, right where you're standing (laughs) is where my father died. (laughs) So he recounted the story of his father, who was a motor racing driver. Alex's namesake, yes. yes. Uh, And uh, uh, the incident that occurred at Sandown, where he ended up dying. And I was standing right on that particular spot oh. so um, and to this day John still gets in touch with me about different things just to say hello yeah
2: um,
0: but uh, at the time of that Sandown 500 negotiations were underway between Channel 10 and uh, what was a VESCO at that stage uh, what was becoming a Vesco, some amorphous sort of thing it was at that particular time and Tony Cochran was involved in trying to get it set up to about to, to, um be the promoter of um, uh, the overall series yeah. which became known as V8 supercars uh, and, and Mike Ordson from channel 10 was involved in those negotiations and that went ahead and he, he
2: was recruited in Mike Cochrane or, or not to... at
0: that stage no no he was he was the head of sport for channel 10, channel 10 and right. at that stage what um, uh, Tony wanted to be able to do was to get uh, regular free-to-air TV coverage. Uh, of uh, of what was becoming supercars, uh, at a time when people could watch it because the, because of Channel 7's involvement with AFL at that particular time, the supercars were getting bounced all over the place. Yeah, uh, Sunday m-
2: Sunday nights and all that sort of thing. That's is. right. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. And it, it had reached a point where um, uh, um, people attending events were booing the Channel Seven crew and commentators because they were so unhappy with what was happening with the telecast and and all the teams were going broke, Uh, there was not much money coming into the series at all and it needed somebody to grab the whole thing by the scruff of the neck and turn it into something uh, and make it much more of a a product that was marketable. That's what Tony did. Uh, And uh, he's very good at that sort of thing. A lot of people criticise him for a lot of things, but I think he's done a marvellous job with some of those sorts of things. And he's the sort of person that has um, always had good vision, knows what he wants to be able to achieve, rightly or wrongly, Uh, and also he'll he'll get out there and he'll make statements about something that he has to work his guts out to make sure he achieves it, otherwise he's embarrassed himself. Yes. and he's achieved results because of that.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, so you know, Channel Ten became involved with uh, V8 Supercars, and uh, I was appointed as the executive producer. This of is the late nineties, nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was appointed executive producer of of uh, the uh, network's uh, V8 Supercar coverage, and we ended up doing um, the. Um, Ten events of the, oh, it was ten. I think it was eight events of the series at that stage. Yes. Eight events of the series, plus Sandown, and um, uh, Bathurst, and then also the Gold Coast Indie event, which come to, came to have supercars involved in it. Yeah. Uh, so I oversaw all of those, and uh, started building a team to go to change the way that was being done. The, the whole crew on a race weekend, then, would be how many people, roughly speaking? It well, would vary between, like, 55 to 300 people. Yeah, depending on the event. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bathurst is obviously one of the biggest yeah. and most expensive because everybody's from out of town. And and uh, cables have to go a long way. Yes, they do. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, but, you know, there are smaller places, like Winton was at that particular stage, which are much easier to do and you can do with... Five or six cameras. The film industry,
2: like television, you know, it's used to a floating um, cast. You you hire for a specific events and things like that. Yes. What was the core group of V8TV? How many people were
0: there? Uh, there was probably a core group of about twenty. Yeah. Uh, and it used to be that you would go. When I worked for Channel Seven, you'd go from city to city to city, and you'd get all local crew. Yeah. But the problem with that was that that people would forget what they learned last year Uh, and that things would change in the sport and they couldn't rapidly identify particular cars and drivers and things like that. And so I introduced having four cameramen who went to every event. Yes. Uh, And then uh, they were senior cameramen who would then talk to the other crews that came in locally. Uh, And over a period of time, as the TV stations wound down their operations and didn't have so many uh, full-time staff. And we had to get more and more freelance people yeah. to be able to come in. And so you would take some of those, a couple of events. Uh, you know, you'd have people who work the western side of the country, those who do the eastern side, and those who do the north and the south, and split them up a bit that way. Yeah. Um, th- these days, you, know, you take who you need, where you go.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, but the whole thing got bigger. Uh, Money started coming in through the regular TV exposure. Uh, There was, um, Channel 10 did a program called RPM at that stage, so it helped. That came under your... That wasn't under my umbrella, but I used to supply footage for it at times. Yeah. Um, uh, And uh, that came under uh, Scott Young, uh, who looked after Formula One and MotoGP and things like that as well. Um, But the supercars was a growing beast. And it needed somebody who was just going to oversee that and make sure that, that uh, what we were doing was going to help to attract sponsors, help to build the audiences.
2: Which is probably worthwhile asking now about. Um, so it was obviously a set policy, idea, platform that V8 Supercars, uh, albeit only the name was, uh, that name was only days old, sort of thing, uh, became the producer of its own television pictures, its own shows. Okay, so what's the merit and and what was the, you know, the the strategy behind that creation of that?
0: As um, uh, supercars and the 10 network were coming towards the end of their second contract, um, (coughs) supercars were getting frustrated by the fact that they couldn't achieve a lot of things that they wanted to be able to achieve uh, by working with Channel 10 because Channel 10 were interested in what Channel 10 needed and didn't really want to do anything else. When you say uh,
2: achieving something, are you talking about the, what goes on the screen? In part, yeah.
0: yeah. And so the sponsorship opportunities go on there, Things that, uh, uh, how you go about doing particular things that help to promote the sport. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> don't go promoting other sports, which Channel 10 did. Yeah. Uh, and guys um, mm. uh, used to get very angry about anything that was done to promote, you know, tonight's um, uh, Formula One telecast, for yeah, example. Right. Yeah. But things had, had grown, you know. We got to having some street circuits and much bigger events. And that yeah. was involving government money coming into the events. And uh, that was adding to the cost for Channel 10. Uh, and events were growing all the time. So, you know, what had been relatively small time Became much much bigger over a period of years, and so supercars needed government money, uh, and the way to achieve that was about to get their telecasts overseas, uh, and then you needed about to make sure that the international clients uh, for supercars were being looked after in the right way. Well, Channel Ten just didn't care, yes, and I fully understand that. Yeah. They paid their bit, and that's all they wanted was to look after that. Uh, so the idea of forming um, uh, Supercar TV was to stop having a network producing the coverage uh, and then have the situation where you could you could be making the programs for other countries, uh, for other broadcasters, and uh, look after the interests of the governments that were providing funding. So like, for example, you know, with the uh, Gold Coast 600 that's on here, uh, is that, you know, That won't happen without government money that's getting exposure for this event in other countries all around the world. Uh, And if you don't look after that properly, well, then those countries start pulling back. You were making customised footage and uh, uh,
2: providing a raw product so that each of the countries that were sold to
0: could make their programs out of it? Yes, we used to. We used to make an international program, which was like a, a one-hour or 90-minute program which would go out to all uh, international broadcasters, which would get run a week or two later. Right. But that changed because a lot of people wanted it live, yeah. but they didn't want the sponsorship right. that was involved. They wanted a clean feed. Yeah. They wanted a clean feed of everything that was going on. So we then, uh, under, under the V8 supercar TV operation, we would do two live feeds. One for the 10 network, or no, sorry, it became the 7 network, took over uh, the Australian broadcast rights, and, and they didn't want to produce the TV coverage. They didn't have the personnel to buy it. Either. So that was the, the motivating factor for getting supercar TV up and up and up. Right. Right. Um, but the, you know, there was one coverage that was done for Channel 7 and a very similar one that was done for international broadcasters where we would then provide the opportunity for international broadcasters to join at a particular time uh, and to know know when the commercial breaks were coming when they could get out and go away and do something else and then when they needed to be able to come back and look after their interests as long as it didn't interfere with what we were doing for Channel 7 Uh, and uh, we developed a way of being able to achieve that and worked very well Uh, and um, we also would make packages for international broadcasters so that they could have things that have things that help to inform their audience more about what's going on, and get to understand the uh, the drivers and the teams much more. Okay. So if, if there are things that you do with a local audience that you won't get down to the nitty gritty details of who's who and what's what that that make people think well. You know, that takes them how to suck eggs. But for an international audience, you need to be able to do some of that so they get to understand. But, you know, let me give you a good example. You know, um, the, um, uh, uh, there's a Sunday afternoon telecast coming out of Winton, for example. Now, in Australia, you would have had an audience of 500,000 watching that, perhaps. China would have had 6 million. And that's a tiny audience in China. Yeah, yeah. But you know, immediately you're reaching a lot more people. Okay. Uh, you know, similarly, you know, when you go to the States or Europe, and you know, um, Motors TV carried uh, supercars through Europe, for example, you know, they have a lot of fans who want to be able to watch supercars and they want to watch it live. And uh, commentary, what happens there, is a, a, Um, subtitled or? No no we used to provide um, uh, the audio the sound of the commentary split two ways Uh, one was that um, uh, there was the full uh, English commentary that uh, we used for Channel 7 so it was the same commentators uh, except that when there was a commercial break they would stop commentating Right, Um, and then um, uh, we would also provide uh, sound effects track, music and sound effects track that, that they could choose. Now, what would happen in some countries is they would do their own commentary. They'd listen to the English commentary coming in and, and they, they would do their own commentary to go over the top of the clean sound feed. Yes, yeah, so I've heard a Chinese broadcast
2: of uh, Supercars Race somewhere who <laughs> <It> was, woo, <"Whoa!"
0: laughs> And they get very excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and often they don't know what they're talking about. No, no well, of, I've got instances. no idea if they do know um, We we, we reached the stage where um, uh, we would then, um, when there was a commercial break for Channel 7, we would add another commentator in and we would keep the commentary going during commercial breaks, and that was Aaron Noonan. Introduced him as a commentator. He would sit in the back of a truck somewhere watching the screen uh, there and keep calling until the three minute commercial break was up. He would stop and the other commentators would come back in. Uh, And um, uh, that that worked very well to be able to do that Um, and that helped the sport to grow dramatically as well Um, and my time there went up to the end of um, 2010 um, and we would made some huge strides forward in being able to achieve those sorts of results and turn it into a, a true international package Next week, we continue the chat with Murray Lomax here on Inside Motorsport. Until then, keep smiling and bye for now.
1: Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next week for more at sportradio.com.au or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars.